Bucket Lists, Man Caves, and Temples. That's our title. For those of you who have liked their own car, up until the moment they envied their neighbor's car. For those of you who have lusted over the release of a new smartphone. For those of you who have bought the expensive bottle of wine, not for the taste, but to impress. For those of you who go to a classy restaurant so you can post it on social media. For those of you who take pictures of ordinary life and hide something really nice in the corner, just to show off a little bit. For those of you who have Googled endlessly, trying to figure out how they can afford the luxury item, how they can afford the nice vacation, how they can afford the, the concert ticket that just doesn't fit the budget, but you have to have it. Hey, for those of you who fit into any of those categories, welcome. Welcome. You may be a broken materialist like all of us and like myself. Stuff, experiences, a taste of the high life. In our honest moments with ourselves, we all battle various, various forms of materialism. So whether you are envious of someone else's possessions or experiences, or you are showing off yours, no matter how subtle you think you are, we all have these, this different battle with materialism. You might be thinking, I'm not really a materialist. I'm not really one of those people who has to have the latest and greatest, you might be thinking. And that may be true of you. But you still might be a materialist if you must have things to be nice enough according to your standard. Your value may, may, not, may not be that it has to be the best, it could be, I would never be, it would never be caught dead in this, okay? And that is a form of materialism. I'll use myself as an example. I want to make sure that I have enough skin in this game because I know this is a touchy subject. I don't need to have a luxury car. In fact, it's not good for a pastor to have a luxury car, okay? So a, a Mercedes, a BMW, an Audi, like that, that, that brand of luxury, if you are planning on giving me a present for Lent, Please, find, find another use for it. Keep it for yourself, okay? But I'm also not the type of guy that just sees cars as going from point A to point B. I'm not that guy. I, I, I like it to be nice enough, relatively respectable, a few nice features. And now that I live in this part of the country, I really like heated seats. I mean, like, I... I, I could not help but say that to the guy when I was shopping for a car. Does it have heated seats? Because those are really nice. I don't need to have the newest iPhone. I don't. But if I'm being honest with you, I don't want the iPhone 4 either. And if you know what that is, that is like five years ago. So I have something in between, right? I could go on, but what are the things in your life that look like that? I mean, every time you go to a store and you hold up two things, that is... Our materialism is saying something to us, or our sense of materialism. Is it always wrong? No. Is it always sinful? No. The answer often is, it depends on what is going on. Now, before we slip into the world of becoming like Pharisees, we, we, we want to remind ourselves of a few things. Now, the, our possessions and our experiences, they, rep, they, they represent us to, to a degree. They represent a bit of our personality, a little bit of our self-expression, sometimes our values. There's a balance to all, all of these things, right? It, it's when these things get tangled up in our identities 
When possessions get tangled up in our identities, that's when it becomes tricky. So I want, I want us also to be careful here. I want us to be careful that we don't judge each other. To use Jesus' words, let's not call out the speck that's in our brother or sister's eye and ignore the telephone pole that may be sticking out of our own, right? I think those are his, his exact words. Okay, maybe not telephone pole. But let's do the hard work of confronting our, 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 our relationship to the physical world tonight. I mean, let's ask God to help us uncover the, the subtle materialism and, the, and, and those tendencies beneath the surface. We'll, we'll define it a little bit, we'll, we'll unpack it, and we'll talk about all its different forms. But it's not just about fancy brand names, okay? We, we might find that those who don't even care about the brand names might be the most materialistic of us all. So if you've, ever, if you've been through Lent with us these past few weeks, you know that we're tackling through the exciting world of the minor prophets. It's our series called Broken, and we have looked at all sorts of injustices, from corruption to apathy, and tonight we're going to look at the nature of materialism in the context of the book of Haggai. Now some context first. Uh, we, we have a timeline that we keep showing you week out, and, and uh, we, ha- we have these two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, we've been operating mostly out of the southern kingdom of Judah because it's, it's longer, and, and there's most, most of our texts just are, are anchored there. And the Assyrians have already taken over, by the, by the time we get to Haggai, they, the Assyrians have taken over the northern kingdom, and the Babylonians have taken over the, the southern kingdom in Judah. And... You can see um, about uh, in the orange there, it says exile. At, the, at this point of our book, the Israelites have been exiled to Babylon. And then right after the orange part is the book of Haggai. And that's us, where if you show the next slide, they, the Israelites are allowed to go from Babylon, which is in the middle of the map, all the way back to Judah, which is over there on the left. And they have just returned to Judah, and that's the book of Haggai. So the Persian Empire is, what is, 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 the, is the reason that all this is, is happening. The Persian Empire overcomes the Babylonian Empire, and they take the crown for the heavyweight champion of the Middle East okay, at this point. And they have a different idea of foreign policy. Instead of having everybody stay in Babylon, they return everybody back to their countries of origin, and, and, and that's their idea. So enter Haggai, who was sent to be the prophet to this post exilic community. And Haggai, he's a priest. And he was probably one of the people who was taken from Judah as a boy and taken to Babylon, and now he finally gets to return home. Haggai probably means, uh, he was probably named after a festival. He probably was born right after a festival. I mean, like, like, I just think that's an incredible way to name children. I mean, imagine naming your next child Thanksgiving, okay? <laughs> like, that, that's, what, that's Haggai right there. And his name is kind of a, deri- a Hebrew derivative of, of the idea of dancing. And so it's like, you know, a dance unto the Lord is, is kind of a way to explain his name. Now again, he was probably 10 years old, and he probably watched his city destroyed. He probably saw his loved ones killed. He probably saw all sorts of terrible things. And somehow he survived, was taken into exile, and he remained as a captive. And invading empires would often do this. They would take children... They would take the young and beautiful women, and, and they, they would bring them back to that, that country's homeland. They would also take the young, educated, talented men. So if you know the story of Daniel, this is, the kind of, this is kind of the context of it. 
And Haggai could have been one of these educated men. He could have been 10 years old, 15 or 20. We, we, we don't exactly know. It doesn't tell us. But he's a captive. And he's probably told as a captive that if you stay in line, if you, if you kind of adopt our culture, and you can sprinkle a little bit of your own culture in here, but just don't be too subversive. If you do all those things and stay in line, we'll let you live. He probably carves out some form of life for himself. And he, maybe he's an indentured servant. Maybe he's a teacher. We don't know. But I imagine what it was like to be him. For 48, 50 years, he probably dreamed of home. I can't believe this happened to us. I, I, I wish we could go home. I, 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 I wish I didn't have to die here. He probably accepted his fate that he would die in exile. And then again, Persia, King Cyrus, invades the Babylonian Empire. And somehow, he survives again. And over the course of time, King Cyrus says, all of you can go home now. I mean, what an incredible moment. I mean, that's like a miracle. I mean, that you, you have spent 50 years accepting your fate, and now you get to go home. This, this, this dream that you may have given up on. And not just you, but these you know, maybe 40,000 or so Israelites can go home. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for remembering us. Thank you, King Cyrus. I mean, apparently you really are an instrument of God's righteousness here. Thank you. And, and they're, they're free to go home to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to worship their God, to start their society back up again, to start their lives and, and to continue the, the way of the Israelite life. So they get back to work. They're, they're enthusiastic about this. They, they start working on, on their society. They start working on, on, on the temple. And a funny thing happens as they try to fulfill their lifelong dreams. They lose heart. They lose interest in rebuilding. They realize that this is going to be a lot harder than they thought it was going to be. They don't have the resources. There's hardly an infrastructure. There's hardly a, a basis of society. They barely have homes right when they get back. And their ability to rebuild this gigantic and amazing temple is just beyond their reach. Now, we know from the book of Ezra that they were able to build an altar unto the Lord. They were able to rebuild that. But once they poured the concrete that was to outline the new temple, the book of Ezra tells us that the people cried. They wept, and not out of joy, but, but out of hopelessness, out of despair, because they started to realize that, that they were never going to be able to rebuild the beautiful Solomon type of temple that they knew once was there. And they cried, and they, and they, and they, gave, they gave up. And they gave up for 16 years. And that's the context of Haggai. I want, I want, I want to read you a little bit of chapter 1 here. It says, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, son of Shilatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedic, the high priest. This is what the Lord says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while, how, while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. 
Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be a little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. And we'll stop there. I mean, 16 years, 16 years, and God blows the whistle and says, okay, everybody, it's time to get back to work. The break is over. It's probably been over for a while. And the beginning, that beginning was indeed rough. And there was always a threat from, from, from other nations and also from the Assyrians and from other tribes. So the Israelites quit. They, again, they built that altar, but then they started getting back you know, to work to their own homes. And, and over the course of time, their own homes went from like basic shelter to these fancier homes, like the, these paneled houses, as, as chapter 1 describes. And this is what Haggai is calling out. You are putting, on, putting in these nice furnishings and fixtures in your own home while the temple of the Lord remains in ruins, and that is a problem. There's a few things happening here in the text. Again, as we said in the, be- in the beginning, Israel is in a nation-rebuilding mode. And in their minds, they are trying to recover from the trauma of being in exile. They are trying to take care of their families, things that we can relate to. They're just trying to get started again. They're trying to pay the bills. They're trying to survive. And they start crossing over into this thing of basic necessities being met and materialism in wanting to enjoy a little bit of that high life and wanting to enjoy a little bit of that luxury. Maybe in in seeing some of the things that they got to appreciate in Babylon, they thought, hey, maybe we can bring a little bit of that nice stuff over here. And, and, And their hearts are starting to stray from from the way of Yahweh, the God who has delivered them once again. I'm sympathetic to this. I'm understanding to this. I I, I bet most of you are in in some way as well, because we can probably see ourselves a little bit in this story. But something else starts to happen over, over these years of neglect. Again, the people's faith is straying away and they are subscribing to this brand of materialism. So one of the, for our purposes tonight, this is how I want to define materialism here. Materialism is that tendency to prioritize our physical possessions and personal comfort over spiritual values. So, so there's a priority factor that's happening here. Materialism kind of whispers in our ear, oh, I need that. Right? When, when, when you are watching, well, well, maybe not you, when I'm watching the new Apple release of the new iPhone, and there's that voice, like, I don't even know if I even need a phone, but that's nice. I need that. Right? Like, that, that's, that for me is materialism. And, and this reflects a little bit of the brokenness in our hearts. There is a, also a brokenness in our worship, how easily we are led astray. And it's also part of our broken hearts of this this inability to hold on to the intangible promises of God. That inability to hold on to the intangible promises of God. So because that's intangible, I need to fill it with something material, something that I can understand, something I can hold and feel and put in my pocket. Like that, that, That feels good. Now God is trying to tell them something. And God is trying to send Haggai to them to intercept this moment to rebuild the temple, the center for worship, 
so they could understand what life is like under the true and living God of Yahweh. And Haggai has, has a twofold message here. One, I'm going to skip that slide. Um, one is to rebuild the temple. Okay, Haggai has a twofold message. One is to rebuild the temple. And the other is to, envision, to help the people envision a future where Yahweh rules and God's people flourish. Okay, rebuild the temple and envision a future where Yahweh rules and God's people flourish. The flourishing word. God is saying to them very clearly, I want you to have great homes. I want you to have a great community. I want you to have a great society. I want you to be safe and secure and prosperous. But the center of it all has to be worship in Yahweh. And that's what we have to get back to work on. That's why we have to rebuild the temple. If they don't rebuild the temple, if they don't rebuild the temple, they will continue to stray. They will, they will give up their faith in, in the true living God. And like their forefathers, like previous generations, they will subscribe to believing in false idols, into false gods and false ideologies. And this whole thing is going to happen again where they lose their hope and trust in the Lord. To skip to chapter 2. It, it reads this, and, and hang in there with me because we'll, we'll, we'll get to some application stuff in a moment too. But chapter 2 begins like this. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to, to the same people again. To, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. To Joshua, son of Josedic, the high priest. And to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? And how does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like, like, like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedic, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Now, here Haggai receives instruction to speak to, to Zerubbabel, who is the governor of Judah, and Joshua, uh, the son of Josedic, who is the high priest. And, and for those of you who are just like really into the Old Testament, Joshua, the son of Josedic, he's like the precursor of the high priest Ezra. So you probably have heard of Ezra. Jo jo uh, Joshua, the son of Josedic, he's the guy who kind of get, gets things going for Ezra. And he, he asked them, because these guys are all older guys, okay? These guys are in their 70s and 80s. And he says, do you remember the original temple? How does it compare to, to, to what it used to be? And they say, it's pitiful. We all, all we have is an altar and a few small walls and maybe a little bit of a foundation. And, and there's a contrast that is happening here. And he says, okay, let's get to work then. Let's get to work and build a temple that truly honors the God who rescues us time and time again. So they say, okay, that's great. Let's, let's get the permits going. Let's, let's authorize the blueprints. Uh, let, let, let's get some of the building materials again. Let, let's, let's get the budget going. Let's call people to action. And, and, they, and they get to work. That, that actually happens. They're in. Let's do it. But someone in there says, this, this isn't literally what happens, but I'm just kind of try, trying to give voice to, to create a little bit of a plot here, okay? Somebody says, somebody un, un, you know, predictably would have said, we tried this before. 16 years ago, and we didn't get far. What's going to be the difference this time? And God, having foresaw that, says this. He says, I'm going to give you three things that are going to be different this time. Three things. 
One is the call to be strong. God gives three gifts here in Haggai 2. The call to be strong. God's strength is going to be with them. Last time, they probably did it on their own strength. This time, God's strength is going to be with them. All throughout these verses of 4 and 5, it says, Be strong to, to, to the governor, to the priest, and to the people. And then at the end, it says, And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Be strong. The Lord is saying this about 850 years after he delivers the people of Moses out of Egypt. 850 years later, he's kind of saying the same message to, to the Israelites. And he's saying, you don't have to go through the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. You don't have to conquer the Canaanites again. You don't have to go through all this other stuff that you'd been through. You're exactly where you need to be. Now all you have to do is be strong and rebuild this temple. I don't know how many times you've tried to do things by your own strength. And you feel that, like, you know, I, I got it this time. I got it. I, I'm, I don't know about you, but like, I'm the most motivated person at midnight, right? At midnight, like, man, like, I, I am thinking clearly, finally. I mean, like, I start writing then. I get ideas for the message then. I, I, I get, like, you know, ideas like, of how I'm going to respond to a particular situation then. And, like, I, I got it. I got it. And I, I can probably work on that adrenaline for, like, another 30 minutes, and then I go to sleep. Right? Like, it's like, oh, yeah. I, I, but I, I got the plan for tomorrow down, right? And then tomorrow happens, and, like, I just feel so tired and weak. And, like, oh, I'm back to doing things my own strength again, right? Like, like this is how our strength deceives us. And this is why we choose our strength over God's strength. We, we have this thing where we say, like, no, I, 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 I got it. And that is part of our materialistic urge, to, to, to lean on the things that we think that we understand more rather than the things that we have a harder time understanding, the ways of God, that is. I'm sometimes puzzled by, by, by the way that we talk about bucket lists. Okay? You know, you know the bucket list? We, we, you know, a number of us have this bucket list of things, things that I want to do before I die. And I have things that I want to do before I die, so I don't want to, if you are a big bucket list person, I'm not trying to shame you, okay? But I, I, I want to critique this a little bit. You know, the book of James tells us that our life is but a vapor. So we have to be really careful when we talk about this bucket list, this, this, this list of things that we must do before we die. I, I, I never really have written out a, a bucket list, um, my, my wife Susan and I, we don't really have a list of places or experiences that we have to see and do before we die. You know, right now with life with four kids under the age of 10, we're just trying to make it another week, okay? So we're just like, we're in that mode of just like, all right, check that off the bucket list. One more week. Another storm. All right, we're going we're gonna to get through it. Hang in there, right? That, that, that's us right now, right? But years ago, th there, there was a, a thought, if I, if I had a bucket list, this, this would have been on the list. Years ago, before we had kids, and the first eight years of our marriage, we didn't have kids because we, we went through a time of infertility and, and, and a few other tragedies along those, along those lines. And I had this, this thing that I really wanted of being able to go on vacation with my parents and with my children. I like this idea of having three generations on, on a family vacation together. And as, as much as I loved my own parents, going on vacation with my parents and my wife was no longer that fun anymore. So if I was going to go on vacation with them, God bless them, I really do love them, they're going to hear this message later, I love you very much. I wanted my kids to be along 
you know, for, for the ride, but I didn't have any. And that became kind of like a bucket list type of moment. And then came the day of the miracle, through the miracle of adoption, we, we, had, we had a child. And then, you know, a few years later, we would have, you know, through, through natural birth, children. And we've gone on a series of vacations. And, and I, I can't help but, like, love this moment that we have on these, these, mo- these vacations and these, these Christmas gatherings and, and all sorts of things. Because for me, it almost didn't happen. At least that's how it feels. You probably have a set of those things, too. Those are good. I'm not, I'm not trying to ruin that for you, okay? What I, want, what I do want to critique is when our bucket list items become a form of obsession, when we, when we, become, when we feel entitled to those things, and we leverage too much of our own energy to fulfill those things, that's when we're not being strong in the Lord. That's when we, that's when we become strong in ourselves. It's when we start saying things like, I've worked really hard all my life, and I deserve this set of things. It's, it's also when we say, hey, I've been through a really rough year, regardless of what age you are. I've been through a rough semester. I've been through a rough year. I finally got this in my rearview mirror. Now I'm going to go do this. Hey, that's a tricky moment. Sometimes that's, that's well-deserved, and sometimes that's obsession. And we have to be careful with that. What should concern us is even when something is innocent or noble, how quickly it can descend into something obsessive. And that, that, that could turn idolatrous. And I also want to be clear. You're not a better Christian if you don't have a bucket list. You're not a better Christian if you just stay home all day. That doesn't make you better. It's about what controls us. What controls us? More on that in a moment. I, I, I feel like I, I've, I've, I've killed the bucket list and, and, and you guys are rewriting your stuff now to, to, to say spiritual things, but more on that in a moment. God is inviting us through the book of Haggai not to rely on our own strength, but to rely on God's strength to accomplish the things that he wants us to accomplish, to fulfill the vision and calling that he has placed on our lives and on us as a church community. That's what he's calling us to. And he's saying, I'm going to give you the strength to do it. The second gift that God gives us here is a reminder of God's sovereignty. A reminder of God's sovereignty. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. Now, if you understand the history of what's going on here, you read this and you have to say, what? Shake the heavens and the earth? If I'm a faithful Israelite, I'm saying, what are you talking about right now? We can barely exist as a nation. We're not shaking anything. I mean, we were the ones who got conquered. We got exiled. They let us go home. In fact, when they, when they sent the people back home to Israel, King Cyrus gave them back the gold that was in Solomon's temple so they would have a little bit of a treasury to work out of, okay? So they even had that given to them. We're not, we're not shaking anybody down. I feel this is like what this, the thing that athletes say when, when they sign like a big, huge contract you know, for like a really lousy sports team. You know, like it's the same thing every time that there's, there's a table, there's the advertisements on the wall behind them, and, and the athlete always says, I'm so excited to be here. 
I want to bring back a winning tradition. I want to bring back the championship to Cleveland. And we know there's no championship coming to Cleveland. I mean, they, they, they say that because they can't say the truth. We're pretty much going to be a lousy, mediocre team. Our coaching staff, our front office, and the talent of this team is relatively the same. But my sports agent really couldn't get me the, the contract that I wanted with a better team. So here I am. Let's try to get along. Right? They, they can't say that. They, 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 they can't say that. And I'm not saying that's what they're saying. That's what I'm hearing. Okay? That's lip service. We would call that lip service as, as, as blunt Northeasterners as we are. When we say, though, that God is sovereign, that God is going to shake, the, shake up the place, I hope we're not saying, I hope we're not calling that lip service. Because there's a difference. One is an intellectual assertion when we just say, God is sovereign, God is in control. But when we, when we live our lives and revolve our lives around the fact that God is sovereign, when we, when we live that out, that has practical ramifications and consequences by living out that type of sovereignty. What is God talking about when he's talking about shaking up the earth and the heavens? Again, he's not talking about Israel's sovereignty. He's talking about something else. This whole nation of rebuilding, this whole gift of Israel, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is coming. In fact, this is a really cool part of the book of Haggai. This is the only verse in the book of Haggai that's quoted in the New Testament. And it says, it's in Hebrews chapter 12. It's talking about Jesus, this whole shaking of the earth. Jesus, it says this, At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, created things, so what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, because he is the consuming fire. In that, there's a whole context there that the things of God cannot be shaken. It's the, the rest of the world that God is going to shake. And that is happening with Jesus. That happens on the cross. That happens at the moment of resurrection. That's the God that we worship. That's why we come out here week in and week out. That's why the temple is worth rebuilding for and why God is worth revolving our lives around. That's what's happening here. The New Testament is all about Jesus, and Israel is the vehicle. Jesus is the destination to it. The third gift that God is giving us in the second chapter of Haggai is a promise to the future. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And again, this is one of those statements that doesn't make sense in real time. Because the, the, the house of Solomon, the temple of Solomon, it was gigantic, was enormous. And what they have outlined was pitiful in comparison. And he is saying that this thing that we're doing today, this thing that we're, we are kicking off, is going to be bigger than the last thing that you can possibly remember. And that's what happens. It happens literally physically with the new temple. It takes several hundred years actually for that to happen. But it also happens in a different sense, in the person of Jesus. Again, we're back to Jesus. When you faithfully read the New Testament, Jesus keeps calling himself the what? The temple. Jesus calls himself the temple. And, and I don't know if you remember this part in the book of John. It would probably be familiar to you. 
Uh, remember, they're talking about how, uh, I think I have it on the screen here, right? In John chapter 2, the, the Jews responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your, your authority to do this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, That's ridiculous. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Because he's not talking about that temple, of course. He's talking about himself. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I, I know I'm a little bit more excited than I should be. And I, and I hope it's contagious a little bit. But this is good stuff. Because in the text, it's talking about a, it's talking about a building. But in Jesus, he's talking about himself. And I would love for you to see that, that personification that is happening here. I would love for you to see that this matters in Jesus. I know it's hard for you to appreciate this temple situated somewhere in the Middle East, but you can wrap your minds, you can wrap your hearts around the temple in the body of Jesus. That is exhilarating. And that's what this is about. That's why we're talking about it tonight. Because this future is being fulfilled in us. This promise in Haggai 2 it was, it was about us in some way and all the people that come after us who profess the name of Jesus. This is about us and our flourishing in Christ. And throughout the gospel, Jesus again uses the term temple to describe himself and he invites all of us in to that temple. He's saying, I'm the new temple. I'm the new center of worship. And then he's also saying, be careful then of all the things that... that, that that take you away from that temple. All the things that make us stray. All the things that mislead us. I know it's a little abstract when we talk about materialism in our spiritual lives. And I don't want to oversimplify and say stuff is bad and only spiritual stuff is good. That would be a gross oversimplification. But I want us to be careful with our pursuit of stuff and our pursuit of experiences. And I want us to examine the motives behind all that and how much energy we give towards those things versus how much energy we give to the Lord. The temple, whether it's a structure in the Old Testament or this temple now personified in Jesus, the idea of worship has always been the thing that God's people were, suppo were supposed to revolve their lives around. That's why the temple needed to be rebuilt. That's why we come here on Sundays. And as much as I love our online experience in church, and if you can't get here, I hope you use our YouTube stream. I think it's great. But that's why the community is so much more than anything that we can receive through an online experience. Because we are partaking in the body of Christ together. We are coming into this temple of worship, so to speak, together. And you can't get that just in a, in a one-person experience through a screen. you got to be in the room. You got to be in the sanctuary. You got to be with others. That's the temple. That's the idea of it. It's also the temple that reminds us why community is so vital. Because we, we, we have this thing now in our suburban lifestyles where we can become quite isolated from everybody else. But when we come into community, when we come into this space, or, and, and also like in small groups and, and that sort of thing, we become alert and attentive to the needs around us. That's when the person next to us says, oh, we are without power. And because you had power, you were still shopping online last night, right? <laughs> but, but now you're like, oh my goodness, this poor person doesn't have power. They should probably come over and hang out with us or at least get a meal and a shower. Like, like this, is, this is what happens in community. We become attentive to the needs of others. And it also, 
it, conf- it helps us confront our self-absorption. It helps us confront our own personal agendas and our own needs and the things that we are pursuing. Are, are, are you hanging in there with me? Can, 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 can I talk about the two exciting forms of materialism? They're exciting. Okay, I, I, one person said yes, so we're going to go. There's two forms of materialism that I, that I think are really relevant here, okay? One is this uh, practical materialism, and defined as this. There is our broken need of owning and, and pursuing physical possessions that inform our identity and bring a, a sense of false comfort and security to our souls, okay? That, that, that's a practical form of materialism, when the, when the stuff informs our identity. But there's also this philosophical materialism that I could not resist talking about tonight, because it's, it's, it's everywhere right now. The dependence of needing the truth to be exclusively physical. I don't believe the truth of God because I cannot empirically verify God. And people are saying that. Co-workers are saying that. You might also be wondering that. I mean, is this whole thing a, a, a superstition that I hope works out? Or is this thing real? And, and this philosophical materialism, this idea that if I, I, if I can't see it, if I can't hold it, if I can't feel it, then it can't be true, that, 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 that stems from you know, a, a bit of this, this, or that undergirds atheism and agnosticism and, and, uh, and, and other ideologies that, that reject the supernatural. Now, we can give a whole sermon just on that. But I, it, it, I just felt it was important for us to acknowledge it and, and just to call out this. I'd like to encourage you with the virtues of faith. Faith is a great solution for all things materialism, for, to, to both forms of that. When we want something tangible, Faith tells us to seek the intangible. When, when we want something that we, that we can explain, faith asks us to believe in the miracle, in the unexplainable. When we want something that we can observe with our senses, faith tells us that we are going to experience this brilliant thing deep within our souls. When we want something that will make us feel safe and sleep sound in our beds at night, faith tells us to go and build and center your life around the temple of Jesus. The way of faith is beyond a materialistic understanding of life. Or to say it another way, we confront our broken sense of materialism when we center our lives around the person in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. We confront our broken sense of materialism when we center our lives around the person in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. Jesus actually talks about this in Matthew 6. He says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness And all these things will be given to you as well. All these other things that you're pursuing, all these other things that you want, all this this, this sense of safety and security and and, and stability in your life, those things will come also. But in Jesus, when we seek first his kingdom, the other things fall in their natural right place. So the things that we purchase and pursue and surround our our lives around, like they, they start off innocent enough. You need a coat, you need shoes. You, you need to go on vacation. You want to see different parts of the world. Again, those are all good things. Do not, don't misunderstand. That's actually not the problem. It's when that stuff, it's when those experiences inform our identity. That, 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 that's when it becomes problematic. And I want to encourage you as we close, do not turn into legalists. Don't, don't become the people who just take on the cheapest and the most economical version and say that is spirituality, that is more Christian. The, the dollar store is not going to be your solution to this, okay? That, as, as, as tempting as a dollar store sometimes is. 
You can be a materialist inside the dollar store. You can be a materialist buying secondhand. Again, it's when we become focused on the things of this world. Even minimalism can ironically turn against you and, and make you into a materialist. The idea of minimalism is that, that you become uh, uh, independent of, of, of these things and, and you, you, you edit all and clutter, uh, declutter all this stuff. But if we spend so much time and energy pursuing the, the minimalist and the aesthetic life like that, we become materialist in the ironic sense where we're still stuck with our stuff and not focusing in, in pursuing this right relationship in worship with the Lord. I mean, I just think that's really ironic, and I wish we could spend more time on that. To come to a close, the other day I spoke at the men's breakfast in Wilmington, and because I'm speaking to a group of men, I decided to talk about man caves. Uh, anybody have a man cave? That's my man cave. No, go, can you go back? To, can you, this, okay, it's not my man cave, but I, I, I just wanted to throw you off a little bit. Man caves come in all different shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's the workbench in the garage, um, and that one's a little bit more elaborate. Um, sometimes it's just a place in the basement where, where, the, where the guys hang out. Um, there, there's a sign that I saw online, a, a place where you keep your favorite stuff and do what you want. It used to be called your life, but, when, but then you got married. <laughs> no, I don't think that's true. I just think it's funny. Okay, it's not true. It's just funny. Okay, that, that's, that's all we're saying there. That's all we're saying there. I understand the man cave. I really do. Because before I had kids, I, I had a room for, for, for our stuff. I had, I had space. Before I had kids, I would put a magazine on the coffee table and it would stay there until, until I or my wife moved it, right? I, I knew where the remote always was and I could watch Sports Center almost any time I wanted. And then we had kids. And, and, I, and you walk into the living room, and many of you know this, and there's now a, a nine-year-old sitting on my, my recliner. There, there's an eight-year-old using the coffee table as, as a desk coloring and all sorts of things, and it is like, it is a mess. There, there's a six-year-old who, uh, who is in charge of the remote control, and there is a three-year-old demanding that I get her more apple juice. Okay, that, that, that is my life. And every now and then, I just need to just, you know, I, I took inventory of my life, and I, I realized, really, I, I've been regulated to one half of the bed, when I, when, when, if there's not another kid, you know, so that somehow that was like snuck into the bed. I have a nightstand, a few drawers, my, you know, my side of the closet, you know, so to speak. And I think that's it. And so I, I had to make this room for myself downstairs in the basement. That's where, that's where the man cave goes. Where I could put my books. Where I could put those magazines that are no longer welcomed upstairs. And, and these are magazines like Wired Magazine and Christianity Today, okay? They're, they're not like anything weird, okay? Like Christianity Today can, cannot fit on my, on my coffee table right now, right? And this, 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 this room has become my, my, I call it my study. I would never call it a man cave, but, but for the sake of illustration, this is my man cave. This is where I go sometimes to, to, to catch my breath, to do my stuff, where, where my stuff won't be disturbed. And... In that, I have a desk there that I pay my bills. I wrote most of the sermon in, in, in that spot. And there's a chair next to it because I don't want this, this place to be a place of escape. I don't want this man cave to be a place of like self-idolization type of a thing. I don't, want these, I don't want this to be my own shrine or my own temple. I don't want this to become an unhealthy place. There's a chair next to, to, to the desk where, where, where I try to read. That chair is where I try to do my, 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 my evening prayers. 
That, that, that's where I, I, I pray and, and when I, when I, when, that's where I ask God to give me strength to overcome my, my materialistic tendencies. Is where I think of many of you and where I pray for, 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 for many of you. Sometimes in the car, but, but, but often it's in this one spot in my house that I have kind of dedicated as, as like, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna play video games on this chair. I'm not gonna watch TV from this chair. I'm not gonna do anything else but the, on this chair but except for focus on the inner life at the, on, on this particular chair. Maybe you have something like that in your life too. What are your sanctuaries in your life? I hope this is one of them, what we do weekly. And I hope there's a sanctuary that you have in your everyday life as well, where you read scripture, where, 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 you, where you spend time in reflection, maybe in journaling, maybe in silence. I, I hope you have something like that. And I hope your, your man caves, or, or what's for women, they're called she sheds. Have you heard, does anybody have a she shed? I, I hope these places that we have crafted for our own personal space, I hope they don't become shrines unto ourselves. I hope they become places where, where we can pray to the Lord and, and seek his strength and seek his goodness and, and seek the vision that he has for us and to be reminded of that. That's why Haggai is calling the people to rebuild the temple so that our lives, so that their lives may be centered around worship. In closing, my, my goal tonight isn't to make you stop caring about what you wear, what you use, or what you buy, or what you drive. Again, don't fall into the trap of becoming a Pharisee. The question to ask yourself tonight is, is my stuff and my pursuit of experiences, are they informing my identity more than I'm letting Christ inform my identity? I'm not trying to ruin your man cave. I'm not trying to tear up your bucket list. But may we confront the broken sense of materialism with our faith and worship in Christ. May we confront our broken sense of materialism with our, with our faith and worship in Jesus. And so, friends, as we close tonight, could we take a moment and stand? We've been having this, 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 this communal time of confession. And if we can read these words on the screen as a community and offer them up to God as, 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 a, as a moment of repentance in community. So let's begin. Gracious God, we are a people living in an age of plenty. We confess that we too often put material things and pursuits ahead of our pursuit of you and your kingdom. We confess that these material things and pursuits too often leave us feeling empty and discontent. Forgive us, Lord, and help us to set our sights on you first and best, that we might bless our families, build your house, and share with the world your peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you so much for my friends who have gathered here tonight. I thank you, Lord, for the gift of Scripture and for these words in, in the book of Haggai that remind us of the strength that we have in you, that remind us that you are sovereign, that remind us, Lord, that we have a future and that you desire for our flourishing. So may we, Lord, may we revolve our lives around your worship. And may you convict us, Lord, for the times that we, that we get it wrong. We convict us, Lord, for the times that we've put other things ahead of you. May we seek first your kingdom, and may everything fall into place. We thank you, Lord, for reminding us of that tonight and for giving us the strength to move forward as well. So in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.